0: Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am your host, Chris Otto. It is Wednesday, February 2nd, the aftermath of the Australian Open. I have to be honest with you, my sleep patterns are all messed up. I barely know what day it is. I certainly don't know what time it is, but I'm happy to be with you and I'm happy to announce that we've got some great guests today, Hall of Fame tennis journalist Steve Flink will join, and he'll be with my right-hand man, Richard Pagliaro, Tennis Now's editor. We're going to discuss what just happened in Melbourne. It was an incredible weekend. Rafael Nadal is now a 21-time Grand Slam winner. The Spaniard rallies from two sets down to defeat Daniil Medvedev in Sunday night's final. He now stands alone atop the men's singles Grand Slam titles list. Just an amazing turn of events in Melbourne. We also are going to talk about Ash Barty how could we not? She was absolutely unbelievable at the Australian Open, becomes the first Aussie to win a singles title at the Australian Open in 44 years, playing breathtaking tennis, serving lights out, dropping just 30 games and not a single set. So we're going to talk about those two finals, and we're also going to talk a little bit about some of the highlights of the first 10 days of the tournament, some of the storylines maybe you've forgotten and would like to relive with us today. And we hope you enjoy the fact that we're going to do that right now. Let's get straight to our interview. Steve Flink, Richard Pagliaro, and myself, Chris Otto, breaking it down for you. See you on the other side. Steve Flink, Richard Pagliaro, I am so psyched to have you both on board today to uh, talk about the Australian Open. How are you guys doing?
1: We're doing fine, Chris. It's nice to be back on with you after another compelling major. I'm always sort of sad when the, when the finals are over. I'm sure Richard feels the same way. It's a kind of a letdown, you know, after living it for two weeks.
2: But we, yeah, it's we, almost we, like we, we, the day. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It's like the day after New Year's, you know. You just feel depleted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was incredible. And, Steve, the reason I definitely wanted to talk to you is when when big history happens, in tennis, I always love to get your take, so I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about the a really phenomenal weekend in Australia, and Richard, of course, so we've done this so regularly over the last couple of years. I'm excited to hear what you have to say as well. Steve, why don't you kick us off, and why don't we start, if we can dial back to Saturday. The women's final was an incredible performance by Ash Barty. Uh, she ticked all the boxes, really, in her run to the title at Melbourne, becoming the First Australian to win the singles title at the Australian Open in 44 years. Lots of pressure on her shoulders. Didn't seem to bother her much at all. She's now won three major titles, all three on different surfaces. What are your initial takeaways from Barty's uh, phenomenal performance, Steve?
1: Well, I thought it was, uh, of the three, the, uh, by far the most impressive. We saw her get on, get aboard first at the French Open. Roland Garros, a little surprising. It was a nice breakthrough. And then Wimbledon last year. Uh, I thought she did a nice job and played a good final against Pliskova. But this time I uh, I mean she was just so dominant. Granted the draw was kind to her, but she just was it was it was the most composed and complete I've I've ever seen her and she she never did let the pressure get to her as you just alluded to. And what I liked the most about the final was that the first set was pretty routine on one break. And then then in the second she goes down five one and Collins was returning so brilliantly at that stage and was surging and it would have been easy to be thinking about playing a third set and maybe even letting that last game go and kind of half letting Danielle have the last game of the second set to be able to start serving in the third, but she wasn't buying into that at all. And she came all the way back to five all and played a good tie break to close it out. So I think she's, she's moving to another level of the game and we're going to see her picking up these majors <laughs> It, 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 she start making a habit out of it, and mm. it, it won't be long before she'll get add the U.S. Open to her resume. But I I think we may be looking down the road at at something in the double digits.
0: Mm, that's that's interesting, Steve, because we we talked about this on a previous podcast, looking for that dominant force in the women's game. And Richard, I'll move it over to you. Uh, Ash party, just twenty five years of age already and people will talk about this and want to put an asterisk next to this stat, but already 113 weeks at number one. Richard, what impressed you most about Ash Barty's game over these last two weeks?
2: That she imposed it on, on her terms, and although we didn't get the Osaka-Barty fourth-rounder that everybody anticipated and had hoped for, it didn't matter. I mean, if even if Osaka had gotten there, I think she would have carved her up the way that she played, especially, like you said, the way she served. She was basically untouchable on serve until Danielle got to her that the second set and I think Steve hit on the key point where she never relented because it would could have been easy to say let me just reset for the third I got the crowd on my side you know I played well the first set but she didn't never once gave anything away in that second set and then the tie break she, she was almost flawless and just couldn't make a first serve so I think you know there was an enormity of pressure I read somewhere maybe half the TV's in the country were tuned into her. And I thought it was also a beautiful thing to have Yvonne come out just like at Wimbledon because that's her mentor and her idol. And it sort of of gave you the full circle continuity of Aussie tennis that she plays a very traditional style, yet she plays it on her terms in sort of this new tennis. And for me, the beautiful thing about it is that it's a reminder that in tennis, skill and technique, win. You know, fundamentals work. I mean, racket skills are important. It's not just about being six feet tall and you know, belting the ball flat and hard. I mean, she shows she, she just has every shot. I mean, the only thing she doesn't do exceptionally well is maybe the backhand pass, but nobody's going to attack the net on her. So. And she hit a beautiful lob, too. So she, she's just a really a wonder to watch. And I think, like Steve said, she's going to hit a higher gear. The other thing that impressed me was that she took some heat for shutting it down after the Open, after the Shelby Rogers loss, and for bailing on India Wells. And, and, and Mexico, but she gave a good reason about Mexico and also just to get home and reset and set this as, as my goal. I want to be the Australian Open champion. I want to and, and accept the pressure and the responsibility and, and, and rise to the moment was mm-hmm. quite impressive.
0: Yeah, and I think she took a page from Serena's playbook about in terms of resting her body and making it a priority, right. which I think is very intelligent, very smart in terms of both mental and physical health. But I'm going back to you, Richard, because you just mentioned the potential for double-digit titles for Ash Barty. What do you see that thinks she's that makes you believe she's built to last? And you know, both Ash Barty as a player and Ash Barty relative to the other players out there in the field right now. Well,
2: the completeness the you know, the all court game that she can beat you from anywhere on the court. But the the main thing for me is it starts with the, you're talking about some five five six, you know, a Hennin or a Hingis size who her serve is arguably the best serve in the game right now. I mean I understand Osaka's, you know, not playing regularly if she was playing or Serena was Serena, you know you could argue, but I mean, you cannot touch her when her serves on. And it's not just, I'm going to blow it past you. I'm going to kick it over your head. I'm going to slice you out into the doubles alley. When you're leaning left, I'm going to take you completely off the court. I'm going to slice you short because nobody's comfortable in the front court. Nobody's comfortable in the transition. So she knows how to make you awkward, but also how she knows what her comfort zone is. So she's I think she's just got an answer from everywhere on the court. Unless you attack her and make her beat you with the backhand pass, but nobody's really. If you had like a Merzamo, a Hennan, someone who could do that, that or a Hingis, something like that, but nobody really does that. So she's 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 special.
0: And Steve, l- let me throw it back to you, because I referred to the the discussion we had about the WTA needing this dominant force. And, and it sounds like you believe that Ash could be it right now. And what makes you believe that? And what do you like so much about her game that you, that you see her possibly being a dominant force over the next few years on tour? Well,
1: Richard, Richard struck the right chord there with the completeness of her game. I feel like she, she now has found just the right balance between the backhand slice and driving it when she needs to. The forehand, is she's made it more solid. Not afraid to come in, and and that that serve is is definitely up there. You'd put it in a discussion, even even if uh, Naomi was was uh, in was competing more consistently at the top. I will say just to follow up on a point Richard made that I I was really sorry we didn't get that round of sixteen clash. Yeah. In my view, I think that Naomi was going to actually have a shot. Uh, I actually liked the way she played in defeat against Anna Samova. Had a couple of match points, but she didn't come away discouraged. And I think it would have been a fascinating match with Ash. and They would have been playing tight sets. There wouldn't have been many breaks in that match. And I'm optimistic that in the years to come, Chris, that we're going to see in the next couple of years, we could see some great battles uh, between Naomi and Ash. I'd love to see them meeting in the semis and finals of majors. This would have been a bit too early for them. But uh, I'm just encouraged because Ash is an all-surface player. Because she's got the right kind of temperament now, and I don't think she's going to be sort of satisfied that even when she find if and when she finally wins the u s open to think that she's done it all and that's enough, I think she'll have that insatiable appetite that all champions have, and she just gets stronger mentally to me mentally to me all the time so i'm just I'm just encouraged she's on the right path and she's going to peak for a lot of the majors and always be right in the thick of things at every major,
0: yeah. It seems like she's built to last right now mentally I, I i notice it it doesn't seem like clearly she doesn't get too high about her victories. It's always a team victory for her, and I think that will help her in the future. I don't think she's going to get caught up too much in the hype that exists about her
1: nor does she get too low uh Chris when she loses i mean that was a devastating loss in some ways. She let the rogers get away from her at the u s open yeah. last year that was a kind of a shocker to me, but i I had the feeling that she just put it behind her really swiftly and just moved on and took the time off that she needed and forgot about Indian wells, and just she would all she was thinking about from the time she left the open was getting her hands on this trophy in Australia, and she's done just that, so it it's very encouraging now I hope Naomi can kind of keep up her into the bargain, but she's another one when we talk about continuity that has the capacity, she can bring that to women's tennis we've seen it twice in Australia twice at the u s Open and now I want to see it elsewhere. And I really want to see this rivalry develop because I think they're both so great for women's tennis. Naomi with that cool disposition and the great first serve and all that power, and Ash with just the flexibility and the the all-around talent. It's, it could be a great matchup.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree with you about the match between Osaka and and Anisimova. I thought that was a excellent match, and it could have gone either way. And I and I did come away thinking that this was a huge huge step for Naomi Osaka in terms of yes she's playing well again that was great to see back on court and really really could have made a deep run it was you know had she been able to save those match points and also I feel like mentally she's in a much better place and is going to find the will to continue competing and maybe the joy in competing which is which is critical did you guys notice that starting with you Richard?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And she had a smile. She came with a smile. She left with a smile. And I think she kind of set herself up, you know, like you said, earlier, sort of the no more tears approach and just let me just roll with it and do my best. And I think really, if you look at the big picture, you know, Ash, in a lot of ways, we've talked a lot about mental health over the last year. She can be someone who's really empowering in that way, because when she walked away from tennis, it wasn't like, oh, I just want to go play cricket. It was like, you know, she was really homesick and maybe depressed or had the blues, whatever term you want to use, but she was able to step away and then come back a happier, more fulfilled person. And I see her getting engaged. And like you said, you know, with her coach, a longstanding partnership there. And I just think she got the stability in her real personal life first as a foundation. And once she was happy and satisfied there then you saw her bring out her best tennis and the way she manages the challenges and pressures now is obviously you know masterful
0: I feel like before we get off this topic of the women's game I'd like to talk a little bit about problem solving and the way that Ash Barty problem solves because I feel like she's built these tools and worked so hard to have them the consistency the backhand slice that enables her to move her opponents around that it, and it, it all enables her to execute these game plans tactically so well and I, to me i found that to be the most fascinating element of her ability to kind of run the table and drop just what 30 games at the Australian Open she was she was game planning so well and she made all her opponents, so uncomfortable, particularly in the last two rounds, Madison Keys, Danielle Collins, both players who came in on fire were just completely taken out of their comfort zone. I just wonder if you guys were as blown away by by Barty's ability to game plan and to get opponents out of their comfort zone like like I was. What do you think about that, Steve?
1: Yeah, no, I was very impressed with that. Now, now the, obviously, the skeptics would say that you know she wasn't playing anybody in the top 10, and Yep. I don't really think that would have been, frankly, I think in the form she was in, I, I don't think the script would have played out all that differently. She might have lost more games and maybe a set along the way. But in the it, at the level she attained throughout this tournament, I I don't think uh, she was really, I don't think anybody was going to beat her. I, I just, as I said, I, I would have liked to have seen her play Osaka, but regardless, mm-hmm. uh, this, was, this was almost certainly going to be her tournament. And, yeah, she is a great problem solver, and she's... has the right kind of temperament to deal to deal with major events it's it's ideal she's quietly intense
0: what's her best surface anybody
2: oh her best surface i'm sorry go ahead steve
1: no richard go go it's okay go ahead
2: i I mean my gut instinct would say grass but she's maybe played the least on grass, but also, you know, because going back to her junior days because of the volley, the net game and all that. But I mean she's great. She's great on everything. And let's just to hit it back on your point about problem solving, let's not forget Daniel Collins beat her last year in Australia in the tune up. So I mean yeah. she obviously took something out of that too to to bounce back from that.
0: Good point. Richard on Ash's Best surface, did you have a thought?
2: I said grass, but I Oh you sorry know, I meant Steve.
0: I... I meant Steve, my bet. Oh
1: sorry. I got that's...
0: you I got your thought.
1: No, I I don't I, I I would say I I like her more despite the fact that she's won the French I like her more on the hard and the grass than I do on clay but I, she's awfully good on clay and yeah. we've seen that week in week out and and uh, I I don't know I I I would I would say uh, maybe a tie grass and hard courts and clay. Just behind it. Yeah, it's
0: amazing how how well um, she's in good shape on all three of those, and that that's going to help her stay at number one. I saw I saw Pam Shriver I think make the pick that she thought that it was time for Ash Barty to give up the number one ranking um, this year. She just can't, you know, was making predictions on an ESPN poll or whatever. I just don't see it happening. It, w- Steve, what do you think? You think she's going to run the no, table very again? Un- uh,
1: very, it's, it's very unlikely uh, when when you start off the year with a major like this. And you're as driven as she is and, and obviously enormously ambitious. No, I don't see it. I think she's, I don't see anybody else playing with that kind of consistency. And she's going to have her usual really good solid clay court results. Yeah. And she's going to be hard to beat when she tries to defend Wimbledon. And then you get her back on the hard courts over the summer and coming back to the open where she had that disappointment with Rodgers. You know, I, it, it, it's very hard for me to envision anybody taking that top spot away from her.
0: Okay. And then, Steve, I'm going to stay with you and ask you a question because I posted the weeks at number one on my Twitter yesterday, and a lot of people are are arguing and going back and forth about that, that there should be an asterisk for Barty for her rankings because of the way COVID shaped up with rankings. I think they took 20 weeks and put it on hold and then continued, and she's able to stay number one, I think, you know, that contributed to her success at number one. But long term, do you think there's an asterisk on her rankings if she, you know, she'll pass Justine Enna in four weeks, which is remarkable. And, she, you know, she's already gathered just so many weeks at number one. And maybe some of that is due to what happened in COVID. Have you thought about that at all? And, and do you have any opinion on that?
1: I don't think it's fair to hold that over her, hold that against her. I mean, she she earned it on, under the system that they devised. It wasn't it wasn't there to protect her, and she would have had to do what she had to do if it had been different in terms of point protection. So, no, I don't, I don't think that's valid. But I also believe that really what she, the ambition has got to be, if you're Ash Barty or any great player, it's these end-of-the-year rankings, year-end number one, that really matters. Yep. It's a point I heard Billie Jean King make in a podcast with Patrick McEnroe, and I couldn't agree more. In other words, to me, it's much more uh, impressive that Djokovic has ended seven years at number one, more than any other man, as opposed to 358 or 360 <laughs> weeks, whatever the top I do Yeah, I think that's it's impressive, and it's it's sort of a nice uh, backup, sort of icing on the cake. But it's the year ends, and I think Ash will, as time goes on here, she moves through her, her late 20s and into her early 30s, because I expect her to be playing at that level. E certainly up till 33, 34, that uh, it's, it's the year ends that she's going to want to collect. Mm-hmm. It's, it's en- ending as many years as she can, because historically, that has, to me, much a greater value.
0: Yeah. And th- Richard, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I'm getting a lot of heat on Twitter. Not heat, but a lot of people seem to think that it's illegitimate, her weeks at number one because of COVID. But I'm thinking, what else could could have happened? And, and who would have been at number one instead of her, even if the rankings were run differently, right?
2: Yeah, it's a completely unique situation, so there's no playbook or rulebook for it. I think you have to accommodate, you know, just based on a totally unique situation, but she's clearly the number one. I don't think anybody <laughs> That's pretty clear. knew that, and I think also, as you both said, just her management of the schedule, how wisely she's Knows when to peak. You've got to see her contending for all majors on all surfaces in the foreseeable future, and hopefully, like Steve said, we'll see that long-term rivalry with Naomi or even Bianca. I'd love to see Bianca back at full strength because she has the kind of game where she can play a little bit of all court. That would be nice to see those two go at it as well.
0: Mm. Oh yeah, there's a lot of names, a lot of enticing young young talents on the WTA side that we'll hear and see a lot more from, but. I'm pretty excited to talk about the men. I don't know about you guys, but Rafael Nadal is a 21-time major champion as of Sunday night in Melbourne. Initial thoughts, uh, Mr. Flink, this is pretty crazy, wasn't it?
1: Crazy is the right word. To me, it was inconceivable (laughs) when he went over there, because think about it, Chris. You make the trip, at that point you figure Djokovic is going to play, and then there's even doubt about that to the last minute until he was deported. So he was going to be on Novak's half conceivably he was going to have to play Zarev in the quarters. Yeah. I did not like that matchup for Rafa even in the best of times these last few years. He's had some real t- struggles with Sasha and I don't I think he would have had a very hard time winning that but Sasha lost to Shapovalov and that opened the door and then of course Rafa somehow got through that day with heat stroke and yeah. all the stomach the stomach ailment. Amazing. Uh, no, not until he was in the semis did I think there was even any possibility and then suddenly you saw okay it was always a good bet to beat Berrettini, so he was going to get himself into the finals and i but but again you did, medvedev having come off the last major beating djokovic in new york saving a match point here against felix and yeah. then getting a little bit better against Sitsapash, he felt like he was peaking again and that he was going to win a second straight major and i just looking at that matchup i just thought that was going to be a hard one for rafa too particularly after all that he'd been through, the time off, the COVID, all of it, the foot. And and then to make, he ends up making the single most extraordinary comeback of his entire illustrious tennis career to come from <laughs> two sets down, two, three, love 40 to win this in five hours and 24 minutes, five sets. Just astounding.
0: Oh, uh, Well said. Thank you, Steve. And um, let me pitch it over to you, Richard, because this is making us all giddy and we all want to have our say about it. In your opinion, what went wrong for Daniil Medvedev at um, Rafa serving love forty and down two-three in the third set? What went wrong from there?
2: I felt to me he just fell in love with the drop shot for that period too much. I felt like he got too finesse orientated, whereas he was having good success, cracking the back, and he served pretty well the whole match. I felt, but I felt like he just let that moment slip. He just didn't bring the intensity that Rafa brought. And, I mean, to me, once he got, once that forehand Rafa hit, the 3-2 forehand in the fifth, I thought the match was over then. But he, to Medvedev's credit, he dug in, and when he broke him again, it was still a match all the way right to the end, past the five-hour mark. I give him credit that he was able to scrape himself together after Losing the two-set lead, although you could argue it should have been one set apiece. But I just felt the sheer will and force and electricity of Rafa and the connection of Rafa and the crowd. It was just crazy electricity. I just felt that that was going to – I felt there was no way he was going to lose the fifth set. I mean, Medvedev has, what, three lifetime wins in five sets I just even though he's 10 years younger even though Rafa had COVID even though it was, I just felt like you put Rafa in the fifth set with history in his reach you know he's just not gonna lose he's Rafa so I yeah. for him to produce that greatest comeback and arguably the greatest most pressure-packed moment of his career it's just mind-blowing that he was able to deliver there but uh, I felt Medvedev lost it emotionally the antagonism toward you know the other the opponents yeah. Toward the chair, I felt like he just alienated people that way. They're already going to be pro-Rafa, but even if he had been playing Novak, if you pull that kind of stuff, you know, you're, people are not going to appreciate that. That said, I really like Medvedev. I like his quirky game. I like his sort of prickly personality. I like that he's raw and he's real. I, I hope he stays the same. I didn't really sort of like all the gestures and the mouthing off after the, you mm-hmm. know, the trophy you're ceremony. Come on, this. Grand Slam Fire, this is not charade, this is not a clown show. I mean, show respect for the, for the tournament, for the occasion. So that annoyed me, but I still like him as a person. I just think the moment, you know, he blew it. He blew it. I mean, he definitely emotionally did not handle it as well. And, you know, he's a smart guy. You've got to know going into that situation, Rafa's like a runaway train. When he gets the momentum, you're playing him and 15,000 people. Good luck. Yeah,
0: right. Steve, if I put it to you, the opposite way. What did Rafa do right to turn this match around from from being triple break point down uh, in the at, in the sixth game of the third set and two sets down? You know, I don't
1: think it's hard. It's hard to pinpoint one thing. All I would say is it what what amazed me was he looked physically a lot fresher. Yeah. As the match wore on, in the first set he looked nervous. He looked uh, kind of old. It was he got off to a miserable start. He's up two one. He's just barely held his serve twice and loses five games in a row and wins five points in that span. And it's just it's looking very bleak for him. And then I thought he played a good second span. As Richard alluded to, it could have been one set all because Rafa had five. You know he had the break and then he also had five three set point. Lost a long game on his serve and eventually lost the tie break from five three up. Although I don't, wouldn't blame him for that. I thought it was much more. Inspiration and brilliance from Medvedev to pull that breaker out from with four superb points in a row to go up two sets to love. But Rafa knew that his level, he knew his level had come way up. He seemed to me he found his range much better off the forehand and started finding that backhand down the line as well. And then he served well. Where I would, my only slight disagreement with Richard, I did not think Medvedev served that well. They each got broken six times. And I felt like Daniel didn't locate it as well as he, as he could have, and he, he wasn't getting the free points that he needed. And some of that is to Rafa's credit. That's, again, where I would laud him is that his ability, if he's, if he's able to read the serve at all, he's able to somehow loft it deep down the middle, high-trajectory returns that are really agonizing for the server to mm-hmm. deal with because they want to tee off and step in and take control. But these returns are much deeper there were stages in Rafa's career where I felt he left a lot of returns short and would get him into trouble, but he was getting, hitting some terrific deep returns down the middle that were, were really uh, causing Daniel's deep problems. But I just felt like he actually played some great tennis, you know, some of it sporadically brilliant, but over the last four sets he was a different player. And then once he got his teeth into it and won that third set. I think he kind of had the you know that's where the crowd really came into play, and that's where Daniel started to play the role of the martyr, and he called the trainer out, and he was agitated, and you could see it, and I felt like physically he actually faded a bit and Daniel made that comment after the match and the presentation about how uh asking Rafa if he ever gets tired, but the fact is I think he was sort of that was sort of revelatory because he he got tired and he knew it, and he was surprised that Rafa had, the, you know, a greater sense of spark than he did across the last, say, set, the last two and a half sets. Just yeah. remarkable.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if he per- perhaps lacked a sense of urgency in the third and fourth sets, thinking that he had Rafa where he wanted him. Even if it went five, he'd be the one that was in better shape, and maybe he miscalculated there. It's It's a really fascinating match if you go back and watch it. One of the stats that I love... Is it took Rafa four hours and thirty nine minutes to finally get his nose in front in the fifth set by a game. That was the first time he led in the whole match. Just think of how much work he had to do, good and bad, to get to that point. And it's just like
1: yeah, Chris. I just yeah. No, let me jump in for a second if I please. can. I I, I I think that's so true. And I also just want to get back to another point Richard made. I totally agree about Medvedev completely overdoing the drop shot and i think rafa liked that he was reading the drop shot and in fact maybe one of the biggest points of the match was at five all in the fifth Medvedev is broken back rafa had five four thirty love didn't serve it out served a double at thirty fifteen they go to five all and Medvedev serves an ace for thirty fifteen and then he tries yet again to go to the backhand drop and it wasn't a terrible drop but rafa scampered forward beautifully and managed to angle it past Daniel, and that was a critical point. Instead of 40-15, it's 30-all, and eventually Rafa broke again and served it out. But I feel like I totally agree with Richard that the, uh, he should have, that when, when Daniel was stepping in and nailing the two-hander cross-court or driving it firmly up the line, he was having so much success, and this was almost bailout stuff that he was doing with the drop shot. And it was no long. And usually, I think of him as a very guileful player. You know, he, he's he's a good, smart match player. I don't think his thinking, I think his thinking was kind of clouded that day. And and maybe because he was so perturbed by the crowd that he wasn't thinking as clearly as he should have. And I think Rappa played a far superior strategic match. Uh, compared to Daniel, mm. yeah.
2: I agree with everything you're saying. Also, if you put that match in perspective from the 2019 U.S. Open final, go back to that fifth set. The reason Nadal beat him in the fifth was because he put the net into play. He was serving volleying. He was bringing him, and he realized this guy is weak at the net. I mean, relative. When I say weak, compared to his, you know, to that level. I mean, he's mediocre at the. But he knew this guy. If I get him up there, he doesn't yeah. want to be there, and he doesn't really have an. Answer up there. So I felt like he drew confidence from that fifth set in New York because he knew the guy's unsettled up there. And then when you see him just, you know, these flailing drop shots at times, and like you said, some of them were good, but some were just like, come on. I'd rather just see you take it, take a step in, crack the backhand, even if you just hit it down the middle. At least you're driving it deep, maybe pushing him back. But I just felt like it was too predictable at that point. But that said, to me, a big turning point was the uh, – the eighth game of the four set, that long game where Rafa held, and I think he hit an ace down the tee to yeah. hold. I, he only had three aces the whole match, but he He kept going wide, wide, wide the whole time. Then when he needed it, hmm. he went down the tee, and I thought that was a huge hold for him, because instead of four-all, it was a 5-3, and they put so much work and energy into that game. I felt that gave him that lift. Hmm. A lot yeah, of clear fifteen forty. He was
1: in a 15-40 bind, and they were a lot, they had so many b- long deuce games and and yeah. each of them uh, they broke back so many times and yeah Ra- rafa was rafa served well under pressure no doubt about it except except, except his, when he served, when he for, served for the match <laughs> and that was Ex- his own that was his own fault and listen sure the thing we have to talk the thing we have to talk about quickly uh, chris is that Please. what again what made this all the more rewarding and enriching for rafa is that this has been his hard luck land. He's had a terrible time since 2009. He beats Roger in an epic five-set final in 2009, and then he, he loses that five-hour, 53-minute epic to Novak after leading 4-2, 30-15, fifth set with an open court for the backhand pass down the line, which he misses. and So he could have been 5-2 in the fifth and perhaps won that. Then he's up 3-1 in the fifth against Roger, in the 17 final, and Roger ran off five straight games. Talk about crowd mm, yeah. propelling a player because they were totally with Roger. And then in between, he's never lost a match or a set to Stan Wawrinka. and he hurts his back in the warm up and loses to Stan in four sets in the 2014 final. Plus, Novak destroyed him in the 2019 final. So he's had such a <laughs> tough time compared yeah, to has. New York and the U.S. Open on the hard courts there that it was as if this match, this was almost a payback. This was like, okay, this is your turn, Rafa. You just take it, hang yeah. in there, fight, battle, and maybe the luck will go your way this time. And it did.
0: Yeah, he stayed true. To, he stayed true, and he put all those qualities that make him special on display, and was able to to fight his way to that title. And it was so clear headed as as. You were alluding, alluding to Medvedev being a little bit scrambled, maybe, with the drop shots, and Rafa pretty much, for the most part, had a very clear head in this match and was able to take it over. But you're kind of going through the history of Rafa, Steve, at the Australian Open. Take me through the history of the big three right now and where it stands now that Rafa, surprisingly, on a, at a tournament where Novak Djokovic ends up being pulled out of the draw and being deported from the country—the strangest, most bizarre prelude to a Grand Slam tournament I can ever remember. Rafa emerges at the top of the Grand Slam men's singles title list. How are things shaping up now in terms of the history of the Big Three, the Grand Slam race, the Goat race in your mind?
1: Well, I think this 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 is a fascinating development because I never thought when Djokovic got. His second French last year to have a career set of at least two of every major title in becoming the first in to do that, and that was such. It, I never thought it could happen for Raab because I didn't think he was going to win this tournament again. This is the one he needed to make it, at having at least two at all four Grand Slam events. Now he's done that. That was another benefit of winning the title. Plus, he goes ahead in the race with 21. Plus, the Roland Garros is coming up. He'll be going for his 14th title. He's never lost a final there. And the other thing I'd say historically that I think is important, it can't be ignored, is he's 21-8 and in major finals, while Roger and uh, Novak are there 20-11. and You know, it's not a huge disparity, but it's a difference, and he's capitalized more. So he has the best record in major finals. He's tied Novak in terms of winning all the majors at least twice. And he's gone ahead in the race with potentially a chance to go ahead by two if he's so. I, I really feel like we're heading to Roland Garros is going to be one of the. It's going to be a critical tournament for him in terms of how this, where this all ends up. Now it doesn't mean because he's ahead by one, we're still going to have to evaluate everything. Djokovic has the most years at number one, the most weeks, but more importantly, the most years mm-hmm. to end it at, with seven. He has the head-to-head advantage advantage over both. Both of his key rivals ahead of Rafa and roger and and you know maybe he's the best all surface player of the three. I would argue that he is, yep. so we're going to have a lot of things to evaluate, except the the big development here is that Rafa has now uh, he's put himself in much better stead yeah. by coming back to win that second Australian open crown, and it's certainly going to fuel him when it comes to Roland Garros and. Uh, in, in only a few months time
0: Yep, he lives off those positive vibes Richard talk, let's talk history how are you seeing it now I mean after after Novak's season last year we were all thinking it's pretty clear-cut case that Novak's the man to beat he might he might ma- match Margaret Court 24 majors now he's got this black cloud of the vaccination hanging over him and Rafa's taken another major w- what do what are your thoughts on the, how things might play out
2: well, I mean, if you know that, you gotta be kicking yourself because conceivably he's left two on the table if you go back to the u s open when he you know and inadvertently mm-hmm. hit the lines woman where he was a huge favorite there, so you i mean you got to be kicking yourself right now. I do think he will get vaccinated. I do think he will play. I think he understands the urgency. And as Steve said, history is right now. This is it. We don't know what's going to happen with any future pandemic. We don't know if you're going to have a bad elbow. Nobody knows. You got to do it right now. This is it right here, right now. And I think that's going to light a fire under him. And I think he's going to come back sort of with that lion's intent of getting it, of getting right back, at least. Even for me, the really interesting, fascinating thing that I was thinking about after that final was Rafa, his whole career has been the chaser. He's been chasing Roger from the very beginning, even though he beat him in Miami the first of that night and all that. He's been chasing him the whole time. Now, what if he were to go to Paris and win where he's up two all of a sudden, 22-20? What would that do for him psychologically, physically, in terms of wanting to keep playing? What does that mean if he's able to establish even a little bit of a gap like that, like two I think that could that can make – I don't know what it means. I don't know what it would mean for him if he would be satisfied. But I think that my impression of hearing him speak and obviously the afterglow of a a historic victory like that, it's just such an adrenaline rush. You want to sort of proceed with caution. But I felt like what he was saying is, you know, I'm here to play. Like, I feel good. I want to keep playing, keep going, and ride this wave. So if that's the case, then we're in for a great, great ride because I think Novak's going to come back – I think he's going to get vaccinated and I think it's going to be on. I think he's going to light a fire. I really believe that.
0: I certainly hope so and I can't wait. Bring it on. Bring it on, you know, bring it on for the clay season. Uh, guys, I think we should move on and one last thing I wanted to ask you both. I wanted to ask you to kind of backtrack and go back to the, you know, sort of the beginning, week 1 of the tournament, the first 10 days before we got to this final weekend. Are there two compelling storylines maybe that each of you saw that might that are that stick with you that maybe point to someone having a breakout coming in the future or maybe someone that you were just so impressed with by the way they played in Australia, even if they didn't make it to the final weekend.
2: The two the one that I just wanted to say quick before Steve goes is the um, you know, the two French veterans, the C Alize Cornet, yes. you know, sixty I think straight major to, to go in and do what she did against Mugarutha, who a lot of people thought might get to the final, might be a threat. And uh you and know, Halep. Uh, and to do it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then to do it, back it up, have the run she's had when she's thinking about maybe this is it for me, maybe this is my farewell. So impressed with her to actually break through and get to a quarterfinal. Another person I really was really happy for was Guile Monfils because I know he's in the Djokovic sort of section. And you think about a year ago today where he was really depressed and that he broke up with Svitolina, and it was it just seemed like he was in a really dour dark place without fans and he was sort of joyless just for him to win the tune up, come back and have a nice, re- I realized he was aided by the draw and all that, but to see him come back and, you know, it was tough that he lost to uh Barrett, you know, that, the way it turned out, but I was just really happy to see him kind of, uh, you know plugged in and happy and enjoying himself and showing that maybe he's got a lot uh, you know more left in him and he's just
0: having fun again nice so the french joie de vivre it's nice nice that you brought that into play and i agree with both of those they were both phenomenal stories cornet was just just blew my mind playing in her 60th consecutive main draw at a major she's going to break that record for the women at the us open that'll be exciting I and mean, just a great performance Steve, you got you have any thoughts on this topic?
1: Yeah, kind of it, one sort of sad reflection and one more positive. Let me start with a more positive one, and that's I think even in defeat I saw more of the greatness of, of Alcaraz. He lost to Berrettini, but he took it right down to the wire after losing the first two sets. It looked like he was going to get destroyed, and even in defeat I was almost as impressed with him as I had when he beat Tsitsipas at the U.S. Open. Uh-huh. I'm still every bit as convinced that this guy is – headed for the, I I believe he's going to end the year in the top 10, and next year he's going to be, uh, I I expect probably likely that he can win a major next year, but he's going to do some very impressive things during this campaign. And then the other sad note was Andy Murray. You know, he plays Basilisville, he wins a five-setter. These long matches are killing him at this stage of his career, and then he loses to Tara Daniel routinely. And I just thought that was, that was sort of a poignant moment for the tournament because here's a five-time former finalist, here's a two-time former Wimbledon champion, U.S. Open champion, Hall of Famer, and he's, tr- he's trying so valiantly to extend his career in his mid-30s, but there are limitations for him, sadly. And I, 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 I admire the grid, and he was in the finals of one of the warm-up events, but I just think for Andy, there's only so far he can come this time around. Uh, yeah. in, in his bid to still play in the game's upper echelons it,
0: it seems that way right that one crushed me uh, tower daniel played great and all respect to him and I, and i hated to have it be more about andy murray not being able to win that match but it was yeah i found that very disappointing he's having so much trouble backing up those wins and you'd think that at some point he'd sort of get the hang of that but i don't know if it's ever going to happen at the slams but as long as he keeps believing i'll keep believing <laughs> um, those are both good I'll throw in a couple if you guys are ready for me Maxime Cressy brought serve and Volley into the round of 16 in just his fourth main draw to Major I really enjoyed that in week one also we mentioned it already but Amanda Anisimova working with Darren Cahill Showing a real kind of showing a lot of spunk and playing a great match against Osaka shows what kind of potential she has. She does not belong at number 60 in the world, and lo and behold, she's not there anymore. She moves up to 41. She could get back towards the top 20. And another one I liked was in uh, she only reached the third round, but Denmark's Clara Talzen, another teenager showing a lot of game, uh, was got ended up uh, edged by Danielle Collins, but she reached the third round at a major for the first time, beat Annette Contivate. For a first top ten win, I think she has a pretty bright future, and, and and it might come quicker than we expect from her. Those are mine.
1: Well, Chris, yeah, let me just, let me second you on on the. I've got to second you on, especially on Cressy. Yeah, because he he is so his his relentless serving and volleying is is so impressive. And Medvedev, of course, was very unsporting and 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 <laughs> muttering and about how lucky this guy is, and it wasn't lucky. He risks all those double faults. He's willing to serve a lot of double faults for going for big second serves and continuing to come barreling in. And I, I really enjoyed that match. And I think Medvedev to, is to be commended for finding a way to hang on there and win it in four. Yes. But Cressy, I think he's, he's, it's so refreshing to see, you know, an and all-out serve and or uncompromising and just keep barreling forward. And so its he's always going to be... Uh, a great contrast to whomever he plays. And I hope he continues this surge forward because I think, you know, what, what we've seen from him in the last two majors has been spectacular.
0: It, it has. And it seems like his serve is good, but even without the volley, I mean, he's got a big booming serve and hits a lot of aces and uh, he's a really level-headed kid and he's still pretty young and kind of new at the game. I expect big things from him. I don't know what the ceiling is. I guess we'll find out over the next few years. Richard, did I hear you have a, a, a parting shot? I know you got to go pretty soon. Uh,
2: yeah, one thing I would say is I've always now lately been keeping an eye on Canada and Italy and the men's side to oh, see yeah. Baratini, sinner both go deep and also Chapeau and Felix. I mean, it's a heartbreaker to lose to Medvedev. But look, that match point, Medvedev came up... Huge. He hit a bomb of a serve and deserved to to hold serve there. It's another tough one for Felix, but he's he's backing up the results now in the majors, which, which you like to see. Uh, so, yeah, those are the two. I, I always try to keep an eye on those two countries because I think between the two of them, one of them is going to have a young men's major champ soon.
0: Yeah. That could happen as soon as this year. It seems. It seems like. And you know,
2: hopefully, Chappell learns from that law because he played well in Spurs. He just the first set. He played one really sloppy game out of nowhere, and that's all it takes sometimes. But he, I felt emotionally. Let it down. And, you know, Carlos has had run ins with Rafa, too. So you can't it's not like he's, you know, I I don't know. I just felt like emotionally he let that one get away. But he played he played well in spurts.
0: I agree. I think he was focused on the wrong things in that match. I I don't think he should have been focused on Rafa's time. But I don't know, maybe he's trying to make a point for the long term future or something. I'm not really sure what to make of that.
1: No, I didn't have much sympathy for him, I must say, to chime in with you guys. And I, I here's the thing, you know, you're playing Rafa. He's got it clearly ha- is ailing. Then, you, okay, he took he took the bathroom, the medical timeout, bathroom break. He wasn't breaking any rules. And I just feel like Dennis has got to own up to his own his own ineptitude at times. I mean, because in first in those first three games of the fifth set, you know, he had break point on Rafa the first game, a couple more break points in the third game, and in between played a terrible game on his serve, and that's, you know, that's, again, that's his fault. And I hope that he'll start looking inward a little bit, as he should, because he's a great player. And, uh, you know, I I think that that was a winnable match, especially in the condition that Rafa was in. And Rafa's not going to give it to you by any means, but Dennis in the first three games of the fifth had himself to blame.
0: Absolutely, yeah, it's definitely exact. not the it's definitely not the bathroom break for six minutes, right? It's 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 the tennis on the court. You have to be ready to do what you need to do at the onset of a fifth set. Yeah, go ahead, Richard.
2: Uh, well, I'm rooting for the long-term Medvedev-Sitsipas rivalry because even though they've sort of had ups and downs on. On and off the court, I just like the contrast in styles. And I Sitsipas showed me something going as deep. I didn't have huge expectations just because of the elbow surgery, but he, you know, he, he had a good, solid result. I want to see those guys go at it more and more. I like the uh, acrimony there.
0: Surprisingly good match. And I, I read um, Steve your piece for Ubi Tennis. You had some high hopes, or you were impressed by Sitsipas, and really think that he can and will be a factor on clay this year, which I'm starting to agree with for sure.
1: Oh yeah, and this was a real resurgence for him. this. is very important for him. The tail end of last year was so discouraging with the arm slash elbow, and the troubles. And as Richard said, now the surgery. I think he seems he looked good. He didn't play his best in the earlier rounds, five sets with Fritz, but then he really came alive against Sinner and played really terrifically for three sets against Medvedev. He faded a bit physically in the fourth, but no, when he comes back to Roland Garros, think about it. I mean, last year he's he knocks off Medvedev, he beats. Zverev and he has Novak down two sets to love in the final, so he was so close to winning that title last year. No, I think he's going to do a great job again on on the clay this this time around.
0: Yeah, I hope so. He's 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 so much fun to watch, and I do love his clay game. And that that just reminded me, though, the last thing I'll say is um, the big three. I mean, now it's I think I think it's. I might have the number wrong, but I think it's 13 of the last 15. They just keep winning these slams. And you talk about Djokovic back from two sets. So in the last four slams, we've seen two comebacks from two sets down from the big three. They're just hanging on and getting it done any way they can. And it's just remarkable that this era just refuses to end. And the intrigue is still there. And we're all looking forward to so much to what these guys are going to produce next and see when these young guys can finally catch up.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I, I you know that, that of course when you say the big three in this case it's really been all because Roger hasn't won since true, got to true. go back to the eighteen Australian but those are, that so it's eight for Novak five for Rafa they,
0: they're running they've,
1: it they've been phenomenal but but you're right I mean it, it, this this is a signal to these guys <laughs> I I'm, I'm not worried about the likes of of uh, of, of Tsitsipas, and I hope Daniel will will kind of clear his head and and reemerge again and then. And then the big question then becomes Zarev because that was a disappointing loss for him to Chapo, And he didn't, it was in straight sets and it was kind of a listless performance. And he had one chance at 5 3 in the second and he didn't take it. And I think that was disappointing because he'd had such a phenomenal second half of 2021 with the Olympics and, the, and his second year end championship. So this was not the way he wanted to start the year. But I still believe he'll bounce back emphatically and we'll see some great things from him in the months ahead.
0: Yep, Lots to look forward to. Steve Flink, Richard Pagliaro, this has been really fun. I'm glad we did it as a team this time. Thank you both for coming on and sharing your insights. Let's do it again soon.
2: Thanks, Chris and Steve. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Richard.
0: This edition of the Lucky Let Cord Podcast is a wrap. I want to thank you guys for listening. It always means a lot to us, and we're happy to have you aboard to join our conversations. Uh, if you guys are interested in Tennis Now, you can find us on social at facebook.com slash tennis now, on Twitter at tennis underscore now. And, of course, we'd love it if you go by Apple Podcasts, type in Lucky Let Cord Podcast into your browser, and voila, you can find us. It would mean a lot to us if you rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. So thanks a lot for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed that crazy Australian Open. And now it's time to get some sleep while watching the ATP and WTA tours over the month of February. Lots of big stuff coming up in Europe, Middle East, South America. And it'll all take us to Indian Wells. And we promise you we'll be back soon with another podcast. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis.